I'm Adam Kaiser. And I'm Jordan Fees. And this is Risky Business. With us is Andrea Kelly, Director of Ethics and Compliance in Anti-Corruption Investigations at Starbucks. Before we get into our conversation with her, let's cover some of the trending topics impacting practitioners. Adam, what's happening? Well, you know what? We're recording this kind of coming into a new year and there's a lot going on in the world. It's been hectic. It's been chaotic. I think some of the interesting things and in sort of talking about, I think, where we're going to take the conversation with, with Andrea today is, you know, with just investigations as a whole, right? This is a year where the EU whistleblower directive is, you know, December 1st is, 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 is coming. It's ticking for, for those organizations out there that are going to come under the, the guise of the, the employee accounts and so forth for that. And then, I mean, just think about, this pandemic and everybody working from home and just the entire dynamic that's changed with the concept of an investigation. You know, I moderated a panel, Concero, which is a, you know, a compliance um, conference, you know, last month. And that's actually where we met Andrea. And we got really kind of deep on, you know, what the new normal of investigations was going to be, just you know, looking at everything that's changed from being remote and you know, how companies are looking, investigating, all those different things. And the new normal will become the normal and maybe we'll get back to normal completely. And, you know, there'll be who knows what's going to happen with remote work and so forth. But there's been fundamental changes. And it's just it's kind of amazing to see, you know, how these teams have been able to adapt and, and what changes might stick. And, you know, I'm, I'm really curious to hear what what Andrew has to say about the remote world now and kind of how their their world's affected. And I think it's really going to be an interesting permanent mark on on compliance and investigations as a whole. I mean, it's 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 really interesting. Absolutely. I mean, I think as, you know, the whole world shifted to remote work last year, in the world of compliance, investigations just seemed like it was one of the most impacted functions. You know, you, you're still doing your third party due diligence. I mean, you're maybe your third parties are changing or shifting or, you know, anytime there's big change in an organization, your risks are going to change, right? And so that's inherently going to fall on the compliance officer's shoulders. But investigations just had such a large in-person component to it, you know, being able to walk up to the person and address them and you know, potentially catch them off guard and be able to take them to a secure location in a room where it's a controlled environment. Like all of those things quickly went off the table. Um, And like you said, these teams really had to adapt. And I think a lot of them have done a phenomenal job and we'll see how that affects investigations going forward, maybe when more offices are in like a hybrid or different situations. Yeah. And I wonder how many compliance investigators have sat in their car doing interviews because their kids are screaming quite loud while they're working from home. Because I don't know how many times I've been in my car doing work because the kids just won't be quiet. So I wonder. I was going to say, this seems like a personal. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I think I think it's personal, but let's be honest. Come on. Who hasn't dealt Yeah, I'm sure that's 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 absolutely happening. Well, and I think the the different risks that the investigators have are just are different too, because now they have to, you know, is anyone in the room with them? Are they recording this from a different device? Like all of these different things have, I think, presented new challenges during the investigative process. And you could sort of compare it to what happened with medicine and telehealth. You know, a year ago, there's so many regulations around confidential information and HIPAA compliance and all that. And then everything went down and the, you know, they sort of, the government said, okay, we're lifting all these restrictions on privacy and you can use personal devices and you could FaceTime and do all these things for things that were, you know, used to be just like completely like no-nos and all this information that's traveling. But I mean, there's, you know, there's definitely going to be 
implications for that. And I'm sure like new technologies and, and new solutions that'll come, you know, from all that too. Absolutely. So let me ask you this. How do you think organizational risk management has been impacted by the pandemic? Uh, now, Jordan, you know, I'm not an expert, but that's exactly what you're here today on Risky Business with Andrea Kelly. So we wanted to start at the beginning. You know, most kids don't grow up saying, I want to mitigate organizational risk. So how did you end up in compliance? That is a great question. I started off as a young lawyer in litigation and employment law and dabbled in real estate as well as tax matters. And so I got a really broad brush of how a law firm works from the get-go. We were a medium-sized firm and I was able to participate heavily in all of those types of matters. And I always share the story because I think it's important for new attorneys or newly entered professionals in the workforce to um, be realistic about the challenges we face outside of the office. I had two small children who were premature and, and pretty sick. And being an hourly lawyer and trending to children without family support was really difficult. And so I made the decision to, to stop working for about a year until we could on their best foot forward. And then decided my life's path was to go back to work. And I found a unique opportunity at Microsoft in their internal investigations department, where I felt was a really good fit with a preventative focus that I had on dealing with matters before they got to the litigation stage, as well as developing a a strong sense of business acumen to learn the business. Um, You can't advise clients or organizations without having a firm understanding of the business operations. And then from there, it morphed into the full compliance palette, including corruption, fraud, internal audit matters. And that's where I stand today. We always ask our guests to share an oh shit moment. So these are career defining (laughs) (laughs) moments that can, you know, either be a moment where you can't believe you figured it out, you had an amazing breakthrough or on the other end, you know, things really hit the fan and I really can't believe that just happened. So tell us, what is your oh shit story? You know, I don't know what it says about my psyche, but this is the, the story that um, jumps to mind when anyone asks that question. And, and I, I literally did say oh shit when I received a phone call. I received a phone call from a very senior um, employee in the legal department in regard to pretty garden variety sexual harassment investigation. It included people that were, you know, um, high functioning in the legal department. And so there was a little bit of extra sensitivity, but I was not prepared for the phone call I received from this person wanting to understand the details and really getting into the weeds of the investigation. So it knocked me back for a couple minutes and then I got my wits about me and I, and I called my counterpart and I said, what in the hell is so-and-so want to know about our little investigation over here? And we quickly realized that the person who was the subject of the investigation was heavily connected to business operations that were very critical. And, you know, you hear this story time and time again in trainings that you know, a senior person gets special treatment because they're a high performer. And I really couldn't quite believe it was happening. And I'll, and I'll share a visual. We all met and we, in a conference room, and, and I, I can see the lights, I can see what the people were wearing. 
And this individual who called the meeting leaned back in their chair and put their legs up on the table and put their hands behind their head and wanted to understand, you know, what concrete proof we had with respect to this individual and why we were advocating for such a strong remedial action. And it was unlike anything I'd ever experienced in in terms of an investigation at that level. And the questions this person asked were, were interesting. You know, a lot of, well, could it be interpreted this way? Well, could it have been interpreted that way? And it was quite clear the direction that they were trying to lead us down to a lesser remedial action. And I was really impressed with the fortitude and just the backbone that myself and my counterpart showed to this individual by not treating this subject any differently. You know, we still talk about it. And, and related to that, we had asked for an email review, which were pretty common, went through a prescriptive formula to get approval. And our approval was denied. And that was really unheard of. And we had to document that in the file because you never know where it's going to go after the investigation is done. But we were lucky that um, the initiator had provided us with ample documentation that was very hard to refute. But in the case that the individual wasn't able to do so, we would have been put at a disadvantage. And I've never experienced that since then. And I hope to never again. Absolutely. I mean, it sounds like something straight out of a movie. (laughs) It does. It really does. Okay. So I have to ask, how has the Me Too movement impacted internal investigations and sexual harassment in the workplace? I think it has both bolstered individuals to come forward, which is a great thing. It also put a fire under corporations to broadcast a little more heavily the findings of these type of investigations, how many investigations are substantiated versus unsubstantiated, and initiate our stories that can be anonymized to tell what the process is like so people aren't afraid. And I also related to that believe we've taken steps to educate our partner population, we call our employees partners, on how an investigation works with respect to confidentiality, note-taking, what's required, um, realistic outcomes. We also have taken extra care to train our investigators on sensitivity training when they're engaging with initiators who bring up these issues, which can be quite painful and personal. So what would you say, you know, looking back now would be one of the most, the proudest moments of your career throughout all of this? I was just reminiscing with a colleague about a matter, oh, it was a few years ago, and it, it was another sexual harassment issue. And the partners that we interviewed were not ones who came forward on their own. They were identified throughout the investigation, and there were a number of them, more than two. And but less than 10. And they were young partners and and really new in their career in a really cool industry and a great department and had suffered mightily from one, one particular individual. And the ability to develop the rapport and the trust with these partners who were so reluctant and so inhibited to share their stories was was a personal and professional moment of pride for myself 
you know, it's funny, you can you can be doing your job and you know, you're doing right by the company, but to get that kind of sort of personal gratification, that's got to be, uh, that's something special for sure, I would imagine. So we talked a lot, you talked, you talked about Starbucks and, and, and all that, and obviously your, your background, uh, you spent a bunch of time at, um, at Microsoft as well. And I was curious when you, when you look back at how things are at Starbucks and how things were at Microsoft, you know, is there similarities or differences in the, just the overall program approach there in compliance, or is there anything in particular that stands out? You know, it's no secret. Microsoft is this data-oriented driven organization and their business units are aligned to that. And so they're extremely good at what they do. Uh, being an investigator and being in the legal department at Microsoft, I, I liken it to Navy SEAL training. I mean, you are surrounded by the best of the best. High drivers, um, very, very skilled at what they do. Their focus is, is extremely business oriented and just, you know, again, Starbucks is designed to uplift regular partners every day or regular, you know, customers everyday moments, as well as the employees in the population. So everything we do at Starbucks is driven through the lens of humanity. It's part of our mission and guiding principles. And so all of our processes, all of our business opportunities are through that lens. And it's a small but critical distinction. It's just a, it's a corporate focus. And I'm lucky enough to be a part of an organization that's highly relatable. Um, it's ubiquitous everywhere, as is Microsoft. And so I, I think if there's a difference in anything, it's just, it's just the, the lens through which um, the business operates. We're on a panel together, or I guess it was a couple of weeks ago now, for Concero, and we were talking about a remote investigation. So you know, making that change at Starbucks, would you put that with something that you're proud of in terms of your career and being able to make that and, and continue to, to operate at such a high level? Absolutely. Part of Starbucks um, culture, we call them connections. And you connect with people and that just means a meeting. And in my prior life at Microsoft and as a litigator, time is money and you didn't stop just to have coffee with people. And so we still do that over Zoom or whatever technology we're using Teams. And it's been a concerted effort to make those, those meetings happen and to establish a rapport. That's out, you know, we all know it's much easier to establish rapport when you're sitting in a room with someone. It's just the energy. But I am proud that we've been able to continue that rapport building, which is, and trust, which is so important in investigations. And continue to heavily rely on data-driven mechanisms to facilitate our investigations. So I, I do think we've made that switch with relative ease. It's a different muscle for us, but I am proud of us that we're able to do that. So I have to imagine that the large in-person element that investigations typically have, but obviously many other areas of compliance have been impacted as well. So I guess my question is around risk management and how you saw organizational risk management impacted by the pandemic over the last year? I think namely in education and outreach to reach out to our partners as well as our business third parties to ensure that everyone is continuing to do the right things, particularly during times of crisis when operations are, are challenged, right? This pandemic has crippled everybody. And it would be very easy to skirt rules and obligations just to get things done because we all want to perform from a business aspect. And Starbucks has taken particular care to communicate and to showcase how 
our partners are continuing to do the right thing during these crises moments that we're, we're continuing to have. And unfortunately, we'll have for some foreseeable future. I mean, it just feels like ethics mattered this year more than ever before. So if we think of the industry as a whole, what things do you see that are good or bad? I think the continued outreach and evangelization of good compliance stories, people doing the right thing when faced with tough circumstances, the storytelling of compliance is going to be at the forefront, particularly with societal issues that are tense and and fraught with emotion um, to, and for corporations to take a stand one way or the other, for better or for worse. But I, I really do see corporations as a social organization, a force that can really allow people to explore how they interact um, for the public good, for their business opportunities, and well as for employee and partner experiences. As we're wrapping up today, you know, it's you know trying to understand. There's people in the world that are are thinking about getting into into compliance or, or about making that pivot or in their change in their career. I mean, what kind of advice, what kind of encouragement would you give to anyone, whether young or old or a peer or anything that's going to make that change? First and foremost, find a great mentor. This is um, this field is is not for the faint of heart and you need to have mentors to assist you to guide you through these tough times. And in respect to understanding the business of whatever organization you're in, is critical. And I think that goes really for any counsel or support person or compliance professional. If you don't understand the business, it's next to impossible to gain the trust and to provide really practical solutions for the business to excel while following the rules and obligations. We never want to be seen as the police. We want to be seen as someone who intimately understands the business functions, what makes them tick, and how we can elegantly implement our solutions to further that while uplifting our corporate responsibilities and our responsibilities. How would you look at, you know, whether it's Starbucks or, you know, I'm sure you have a lot of peers and other organizations, in terms of how risk and compliance is viewed. And I would imagine this varies. <laughs> this varies a lot from company to company. And I wouldn't suggest, you know, obviously not going to answer it about Starbucks because that could be probably not the best. But from stories you've heard about that from other folks, from peers and so forth, I would imagine it runs the gamut. I mean, have you heard some really kind of just terrible stories versus great stories about just the overall view of the department and the program? Sure. And it goes back to the advice I gave about getting a mentor in the business units. If, if you're seen as the police, the Gestapo or whatever we want to call it, there are times I live in Redmond, Washington. I grew up in Redmond, Washington. I worked for Microsoft. I worked for Starbucks. So the people that I interact with on a business level, I often know personally. And so they share stories with me that they might not otherwise share with someone that they didn't know personally. And you know, we're their least favorite phone call until we help them solve a problem, right? Or until we, we guide them through a thorny issue or show that we're really on their side and are partnering with them to enable the business to operate. So you, you've got to have a seat at the table and, and have some skin in the game and to show your human side. And then you do appreciate and understand the risks of business location from an operational level. 
so that you don't come across as no, no, this is not how you do it. We've all heard these ridiculous jokes. Oh, every time Andrea calls, I want to hang up or go throw up. That's not that you want to turn that around. Oh my gosh. <laughs> <laughs> and you do that by, by experience. Do you find that to be true at kind of like all levels of the business? Yes, I do. And it might be an old tired joke that people like to just repeat, but but I think there's some truth. There's always truth. Jokes are only funny if they have some truth to them. (laughs) So as a final question, I just wanted to ask, so, you know, obviously we talk a lot about anti-corruption and it's in your job title, but on a personal note, what does anti-corruption mean to you? And it's at the human level. People want to do the right thing and they want to feel supported by their organization to do the right thing. So I think that a a key takeaway is when you put so much pressure on a business unit to perform, and if you're not sending the equal, if not more forceful message to do it in the right way, you're really failing at the human level. You will get much better performance out of employees when they feel supported to do the right thing. Even if there is a potential miss on a business level, if you take the long view and create an environment in which partners can be really successful when they make tough decisions at a compliance risk. I mean, there's such a big human element to it, even if sometimes that, that gets overlooked. I think that's what it really comes down to. We focus on all the, the times that the, the the bad thing happens or the wrong thing, but it, you know, I would imagine at the end of the day, a vast majority of people just want to do the right thing in the first place. And they just, you know, they might need to be enabled to do that or, or all that. So, you know, it's nice to to think a little bit positive in that regard. Sure. Thank you so much for your time and for being a guest on the Risky Business Podcast. I know Adam and I really enjoyed chatting with you. So thank you so much. Do you have an oh shit moment that you'd like to share knowing that it will help others like you? Shoot us an email at riskybusiness at We'd love to hear from you.